Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Gibbon, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I'd also appreciate if you took a moment to follow on whatever platform you're using to listen to your podcast. I'd also like to mention that our next L. Ron Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future volume is now available. This volume contains 12 incredibly talented authors and 12 brilliant illustrators selected by some of your favorite names in science fiction and fantasy. I promise that if you are a fan of science fiction or fantasy, you will find new voices you will love. And if you're an aspiring writer or illustrator, these stories and illustrations provide the benchmark of quality necessary to break into the ranks of professionals. Writers of the Future anthologies are available wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., South Africa, and Australia. Get your copy now. Well, actually, I prefer you waiting until this podcast is over, then get your copy. Today's guest is Bob Bly. Bob is referred to as the direct response copywriter for the digital age. We've used him for several years at Galaxy Press. In addition to helping us at Galaxy Press, he's also worked with a few other startups such as IBM, AT&T, Intuit, Forbes, Medical Economics, and ITT. McGraw-Hill calls him America's top copywriter. The Direct Marketing Association awarded him the Gold Echo, and the American Writers and Artists Institute voted Bob Copywriter of the Year. He has taught copywriting at New York University and is the author of over 100 published books, including the Digital Marketing Handbook, the Copywriter's Handbook, PR for Dummies. And here we go with a segue over to the topic of today's interview, another book. He's also the author of the just-released Science Fictionary, a dictionary of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Welcome, Bob. Hey, John. It's good to see you, and I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm very glad we're able to get this together. We've chatted and emailed back and forth the last several years about other copywriting stuff. But then when you sent me this book, I went, wow, we definitely am interested mm-hmm. in uh, in introducing the uh, listening audience to this because it's there's there's the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction that John Clute and uh, Peter Nichols assembled, but it's it's different. What you've got is it seems to be you've gotten a lot more of um, popular culture items in here, which science fiction goes back to a lot more of the roots and stuff. But we'll go into that in a bit. So while I haven't read the entire fictionary, I'm certainly flipped through and was fascinated by the volume of entries and how current your book is with SF pop culture and its terminology. So where did the idea originally come from of, of doing a, a fictionary? I have been, as, as you know, because we've talked, a science fiction, also fantasy and horror, but primarily science fiction, avid reader, fan, and writer of short stories, some of them published for over a half a century. And one day I was uh, looking at something and I saw the definition of warp factor and how to calculate it. How fast is warp factor three? And I said, that should be somewhere, maybe in like in a dictionary of science fiction. And I said, oh, a science fictionary. And as soon as that word popped into my head, I said, that is a book I want to put together. And so I started. How many years ago was that? I actually have been working on this on and off. I don't sit and write it. Sure. As I encounter stuff, I add it in at least two years. Wow. So um, how do you research such a, a book? Is that's you know, just wait for like looking for entries or looking at uh, Facebook posts is, is probably too much of a hit and miss. Well, actually, if you give yourself a long period of time, you know, you're a publisher. So if I was writing a book under contract for you, I'd have so many months to do it. But I, as I said, I started this at least two years ago and you just come across stuff in your watching, your reading that strikes you as an entree. And I jot it down, write it down and put it in a file. Then I, I started putting it together in a book manuscript and I had certain entries that I needed to entries that I needed to know more about, or I thought of others that I didn't have, and those I researched. Like you, I have a huge uh, in the other room, a science fiction a hard book library. So that you know, I spent a lot of time at that desk going through stuff, you know, flipping through it and looking through it. Uh, either that I thought something I was looking for something or I might find something. I watch, like like a lot of us, tons of movies and television shows in the genre. 
as I say, I'm constantly reading. And uh, that's basically uh, the methodology I used. And I, what I look for is anything, it's not comprehensive. Right. Because if I would write comprehensive or authoritative, it'd be 5,000 pages. So I said, I'm going to make it my pro, my goal for en- entries. I want it to be interesting. If it was interesting to me, I figured it would be interesting to some of the readers. That's how I judge something. I get So how many entries do you have in here? I didn't count them, but it's many hundreds. Okay, good. Yeah, so, um, yeah, because I was looking at it and... I'm very familiar, like for myself, I, my love of science fiction began with E.E. E. Doc Smith and I love Doc Smith. Lensman series and Skylark series. Mm-hmm. That's what hooked me to the genre. I read the Lensman series. When I first got started, I think it was two or three times. It was just like, wow, you know? Um, and it's, um, I've had various conversations over the years with some of our judges, like Fred Pohl was um, a judge. He passed away several years ago. But he had a uh, a wife that was um, very involved with. It was first of all, she was a Victorian uh, Judith Merrill. She was uh, his wife in the in the fifties. Mm-hmm. And you, would you define Futurians in in your book? And then she wanted to define speculative fiction. It's had multiple definitions over the years. But I looked at it and I went through the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, I went through your book, and then my conversation with Fred. And they're all a bit different so i was just curious so like just the role of a dictionary slash fictionary in the maintaining of a heritage or signaling you know new directions what do you see as as the role of something like your your fictionary to maintaining the integrity or the history knowledge history of science fiction even if it's more current stuff that popular well it has a few appeals to fans. As I say, it can't be authoritative or comprehensive. And, you know, you could say, well, everything in existence is on the internet. So why do we have the science fictionary? One is that it's just real. And that's what I tell you. It's really interesting. I curated, as they say, what I found most fascinating and I thought, and fun, that was the other criteria. I want it to be fun. And if I thought it was other people seem will, will too. The other thing about it is having it with this, this highlight of the most fun, fascinating stuff. If you get it and you're a science fiction fan, you, you can look through it and it'll spark in you. You'll read entries and say, that's an interesting idea. I never read that book. I'm going to go get that book. So the people who have read it, the, our beta readers, so to speak, all of them said, I, I went through this and I found made a list of dozens one said a hundred books that I want to go and read that I should have read or somehow I missed and now want to read or that I read once and I love, I want to reread it. And, and even in just reading the, the, the entries, if you read an entry about something you've already seen or watched or read, it brings back, it's nostalgia. It brings back the memory of, of that story or book or event. Right. Yeah, that's one thing that's, I mean, we're going to get into that a bit later, but we'll address this now. On, like on the on the book, you discuss in your introduction uh, three primary uses of the book, and I guess that last you're talking about was number three. But to you know, number one, you say clear explanation of an important science fiction idea, work, author, or concept. So, how what would be an example of that? Uh, for example, uh, do that pop into mind. If, if people have read Jose, Jose Luis Borges, who was a favorite of Harlan Ellison's, he's got a famous story called The Aleph. But what's The Aleph? So I, you know, I went to the book and, and distilled what he had in the, in the story into a clear, you know, accurate explanation. Same thing with uh, Philip K. Dick in his book Ubik. We, we know what Ubik is, but what exactly is Ubik? And so I went to the book and there's several ways it's explained. And I distilled it into what I think is a, a clear definition. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, we talk about Star Trek, warp factor three. How fast is that? I found out that the warp factor speed is the cube of the warp factor times the speed of light. So warp factor three is 27 times the speed of light. And you can calculate it into miles per second as well. Wow. I thought it was always just three times the speed of light, four times the speed of light. No, everybody thinks that. No, it's not. Yeah. Wow. Okay. 
Well, there you go. That's another reason to buy your book. <laughs> so, all right. So then, um, yeah, because that, that makes sense on his thing on, like you said, the three reasons. And again, this is the introduction to um, into his fictionary. So the clear explanation of an important SF idea, work, author, or concept. was What was the one that most surprised you? Or was that that warp factor three? Um, I would say it is... Uh... That didn't surprise me. I didn't know it. God, which one most surprised me uh, most? It's the, probably the mechanism by which, a, again, in Star Trek, a ship can go faster than light, even if the warp engine isn't on. And it's something called the soliton wave. And I'd seen it in one episode. I forgot about it. And it's it's basically, you know how you throw a stone in a pond and the wave propagates and then it yeah. stops? A soliton wave is that in space, but it never stops propagating. So if you can jump onto that and ride it, you'll go the speed of light and faster. Soliton. So S-O-L. I think it's S-O-L-I-T-O-N. Yeah, I've got your dictionary open right here as we're talking about this. So Soliton Wave in Star Trek, Next Generation, Soliton Wave is a non-dispersing wavefront of subspace distortion by continually propagating in subspace. The Soliton Wave can propel a starship into warp speed without the need of having that warp drive. Okay, good. Yeah, so it's, it's continually propagates, so it doesn't stop. And then subspace is another word for hyperspace, so it's going between the place in the folded universe so it can go faster than uh, if you're going straight through the normal space. I get it. Okay, good. All right, so then what's amazing is that this stuff is, you just, you break it out here like, like the uh, speed of sound is this many miles per hour and the speed of light is this many miles per hour and soliton is uh, this kind of a wave that propagates this way here and it's like so matter of fact with it, but it's all science fiction, at least at this point, unless somebody has some serious precognition happening, you know, um, when... Well, some people think we do. That's not proven, but for example, uh, someone asked me the other day about teleportation and the argument can be made if you read scientific papers, that quantum entanglement is teleportation. Mm -hmm. Not everybody would agree with that. So the more, you know, stuff in science fact often originates in science fiction. I mean, Jules Verne invented the submarine. Right. I grew up in New Jersey next to the USS Ling, which was a World War II submarine in the Hackensack River. So eventually a lot of what these guys uh, wrote about came true. Uh, not everything did. And some predictions, they got really, really wrong, including Asimov, but a lot of them came true. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things in, uh, which we'll address a bit later in, in Elwin Hubbard's book, Battlefield Earth, in his introduction, he referred to science fiction as the herald of possibility that resulted in the scientists wondering, can I make that happen or not in real life? And I see some of these photos of of Hubbard way back when, like in the, in the 40s, there he is with the guys whose day jobs were the rocket scientists who were writing then um, the science fiction books off hours, but these were the ones that were trying to make it happen in real life back then. And I know there's some people, we've had a few winners that are, their day job is still scientists for NASA. And at nighttime, they do their speculative, speculating on the future of what science will come to be. So, um, you now mentioned nostalgic appeal is the second uh, primary uses of the book. So again, let's hit some uh, examples of how that might a- apply to you. I, I'll give you my examples because I already listed yeah. them out on here. Mm-hmm. So for yourself, what what did that apply for you? Well, that would apply to um, going back as far as, I don't know if you remember Fireball XL5. Yeah. On TV, the marionette show. All the things, when I say nostalgia for me, it's the things I watched from age or, or read from age seven to 14. And a lot of that is in the book. Again, Fireball XL5 is Gigantor, the space age robot. I don't know if you remember him. No, but I remember the Buck Rogers with the, his spaceship on, on the, with the uh, sparkler as his. I, I, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I could see you're smiling that you love. Yeah. The sparkler. Yeah. I remember when I was, I was watching the adventures of Superman where, where a meteor was going to collide with the earth and it was sparkling and you could see the string holding it up <laughs> in front of the camera. That's the stuff we love. Um, and another one was, uh, there's certain moments in, in horror and science fiction. One of my favorite is 
did you ever see The Bride of Frankenstein? Yep. Yeah, so at the end where he says to the scientist, you go, and he says to the bad scientist, you stay, he reaches up and says, we belong dead, and he pulls the lever and he destroys everyone. It was just a dramatic scene. Uh, another hard one is the original Dracula. Uh, you know, it's a classic line. I don't drink wine. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, even for me, just going back and looking at the entries and, um, when I was growing up, cause I don't watch, t I don't really watch TV particularly anymore. Cause I'm always reading books to keep up with the next podcast interview. Um, right. But I remember um, when I was okay. Let's just check and see what we got here. You had Wild Wild West, and that was that was one of my standard shows I watched there. I think it was on Friday nights. I watched every night with uh, right. James and Artemis, Man from Uncle, which was the other show I watched that night. I love that United Network. I love that show too. United Network Command for Law Enforcement, Uncle. Right. Um, but it was it was great. Just like what you say there, what it you know by having these these entries how it brings back that nostalgic appeal of, you know, what you still like. And some people, you know, nostalgia, it doesn't matter you know, how old you are because you all will have your nostalgia, you know, maybe, yeah. you know, for someone who's, who's younger, for them, the nostalgia is something that was in the 90s, you know, or someone's going to go, yeah, 2001 in Space Odyssey, that was really trippy. But somebody else is going to go back to the Bride of Frankenstein, you know, or right. um, Buck Rogers, you know. It's, but anybody will have that. And you've covered many of those those different items in there. Mm -hmm. um, then the last thing you talked about, too, was the definition may serve as a springboard for further pursuit of, um, of speculative fiction, science fiction, and fantasy, and horror passions. So you, you addressed that a little bit, you know, at the, at the beginning of this interview here. But... Um, I think that's, from talking to you so far, that's the part that seems to be the most appealing to me because I've already got, like you said, I've got ready reference to the internet. But you don't search what you don't know to search for. Exactly. That's why someone said to me, well, why would you even do this? Because everything's on the internet. I said, it's, it's very similar, like when you went to the library, when, when people still went to libraries, you had to do your research for homework, but you'd come across 20 other books before you got to the one you wanted to find, and you would stop and you'd look at those and you'd learn all sorts of things you other, otherwise wouldn't have learned. Actually, once I interviewed Harlan Ellison, and he brought up this point, why he likes libraries so much and dislikes the internet. And even when you have the book in your hand, the library, you flip through it and find other stuff. Yeah. If you just, if you just Google it, it pops up and there it is. So with this book, you know, I, I mean, I'm doing my own research and reading and I say, wow, that sounds good. Um, I either I saw that or I read that. I, I don't remember the book that well. I got to read it again. Or, you know, it was one Asimov book led to another. And I said, well, I read the, you know, the Caves of Steel, but I didn't read Pebble in the Sky. I got to read Pebble in the Sky. How did I ever miss that? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's um, I don't want to underplay th this, the value of, the, of this last point here. Because you get you get lazy, you get very lazy with the internet because you just say, okay, so um, what's the speed of light? Type it in, boom, and that, you get your answer. But you don't get any of the other things that connect to it that can maybe give you a little bit more inspiration or a little bit more. Wow, that's it. I didn't know that. Or the things that connect that you get when you when you read a book. It's interesting that. I just read an article, I don't know if it was in New Yorker or, or, or the, no, it was in The Guardian, um, an article they did on Barnes & Noble, James Daunt with his, his reverting back to, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a corporation, but he's running it like they're individual bookstores, you know, and they're able to do it. And they're filling up and people are coming in and they're finding the, just the joy of walking down an aisle and seeing all these different books, you know, and so with with what you've got in this dictionary, it gives someone the ability to walk down the aisle as you're going through and just flipping through it because it's not this massive tome. Like you said, it's, it's thousands. It's not tens of thousands of entries. But this is, it'll give you things in popular culture, but things that maybe you missed that um, you can go, wow, 
that, I, what was that? So for you, what was, what would be something that was a springboard for you to further pursuit? It wasn't a strange work, but I realized, for example, there's certain major, major books and themes that I never, and, and other media that I've never, I never read. For example, I was, I found a term, uh, and I'm not going to remember what it is that happened to be in, um, Samuel R. Delaney's, uh, um, Dahlgren, classic work. How did I never read that? So I, after, you know, I went out and bought the book and uh, looked at it, put a couple of dictionary terms in it from it. But now I'm, I, I, after I've read my, re- written my book, I'm reading Dahlgren, which I wouldn't have ever discovered otherwise. Some of the stuff you rediscover. You know, I had a couple of entries on Clifford Simak and I did a little research on him and I said, God, he's got books that I never read. And to me, uh, Simak is one of the most underrated science fiction writers out there. I think he was not appreciated. And I've started reading his works in sequence and they're terrific. And I wouldn't have done that without doing this, uh, doing this book. That's great. Cause that's, that makes, um, that makes good sense on that. Just, you know, tripping over things that, and that actually is a problem is another value of what you've, um, created here is the ability to, um, to discover things that exist out there, but that it's not, you wouldn't necessarily know about it. Um, and, and the way the book does this, you, I could just give somebody a list of all the science fiction books, but looking at a list is boring. But the, the book, you know, you go in a mall and in the food court, someone's holding a tray of uh, Chick-fil-A's and you taste one. And then you say, I got to eat a Chick-fil-A. In the book, it's like a sampler. You read two, three paragraphs of something that was covered in, uh, you know, Dahlgren and say, that's interesting. I got to check that further. Right. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to check because like for me, the, the science fiction's golden age was 1938 to 1946. Absolutely. And you put it in the book, you said golden age from 1950s to the 70s, because for me, it was like, it was created with under the tutelage of John Campbell as the editor of Astounding. Because you mentioned Clifford Simak. He was one of those authors along with um, Hubbard, Jack Williamson, Harry, uh, Henry Kuttner, L. Sprague de Camp, uh, Catherine Moore, uh, Bob Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, A.E. Van Vogt. Those were like, for me, and that's, again, that's also an encyclopedia of science fiction, but also I got it just because I was such good friends with our, our earlier judges mm-hmm. while they were still with us. So I was able to, you know, have discussions with Jack Williamson and, and Fred Pohl. Um, and they had their, I mean, they lived it, you know, they're the, the grand masters that, you know, knew all the different people and, and experienced what was going on. So on this, um, so you have a definition, Encyclopedia of Science Fiction has a definition. How does that work in in creating entries into um, a dictionary or a fictionary that, you know, where one definition is is different than another definition? I've written other dictionaries in other fields before. Like I have one book uh-huh. that's titled The Words You Should Know to Sound Smart, which is a vocabulary book. Sure. I wrote a dictionary in the early 80s of computer words. And when you have terms that have multiple definitions in different sources, you, you do your best as the editor slash writer to resolve the sources and put them together in a way that makes the most logical sense. And if you know, something conflicts, you usually go with the source that is most authoritative. So, um, you know, if it's uh, something to do with, uh, you know, foundation series, I'm going to go over a citation in the original foundation books versus a, an article about it, uh, you know, in the science fiction magazine or something like that. Right. Okay. Um, so then on, I guess on, I mean, I went through and I was like, okay, so let's just start checking this thing out here. And, and, you know, you even had the Jetsons in there and that was my, my early growing up, you know, Saturday morning cartoons, meet George Jetson. So you got the Jetsons. So, so my Jetsons question to people, cause I love trivia. I say, what were the two companies in Jetsons? Who did he work for? He, uh, Spacely Sprockets 
Right. And who was his competitor, Spacey's competitor? It was um, Cogswell Cogs or something like that. You got it. Cogswell Cogs. Cogswell Cogs. And it's a fun, that to me, there's a fun kind of trivia question. My, I love trivia. And my favorite trivia question to determine whether someone is a real trivia person or not. Here's the entry question. What was Herman Munster's home address? Well, I just, I just flunked. I just know it's up here down the road from me in uh, Universal Studios. <laughs> you can, you can, so you can see it. It's thirteen thirteen Mockingbird Lane. Okay, good. So you you definitely qualify as the the key. Yeah, I, I've written books on other aspects of pop culture trivia. I wrote a couple of Star Trek books, uh, Stephen King book. So I'm really you know I'm a pop culture addict. I, and, and but in science fiction, fantasy, and horror is my passion spot, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. We that was. Uh, that was the theme of um, our keynote speaker this year at the Writers of the Future Gala for Volume 39. We had the whole thing on, on pop culture where uh, we had the, uh, the owner of Salt Lake City Fan X, and he now also owns Atlanta Comic Con and Tampa Bay Comic Con and mm-hmm. Indiana Comic Con. And um, he was... Um, talking about the importance of, of popular culture, you know, mm-hmm. and for him, um, it was a, um, it was a matter of celebrating the writers and the artists. Cause he said, they're not anything, um, unless you have writers and artists, you know, to be able to create popular culture. And, um, that's Dan Farr I'm talking about there. He's the, he's the uh, CEO, but, um, I think it's, with what you've done in this book here and the importance of popular culture. And this is going in a different direction. I wasn't thinking about it when I mm-hmm. initially read, th- read through the book and in, in doing this, but now talking to you about it, there's an interesting with, with popular culture is that it, it bypasses the whole thing of, of, um, of, of what you have happening in today's society of, um, you know, the hate and, um, you know, you've got right and left, you got Democrat, you got Republican, you've got uh, religious, not religious, all these different things where you got this schisms happening in popular culture seems to bypass that because you either, you know, if you got people that want to go and celebrate, you know, whatever on Star Trek or whatever on Star Wars or whatever on Dune, it doesn't matter what person you are. It's like you're there doing that and it doesn't matter if you're um, – anything or not, you're just, you're there celebrating popular culture. And I think it's one of the things that your book helped to bring back from now that I'm you know, thinking about just, cause like I said, it was, you know, looking at the wild, wild west. I just had so much pleasure what, you know, watching it. This is before right. the wild west movie came out a few years ago. This is the original TV series, which was just, it's totally, you know, campy, but it was so much fun. Campy is especially fun, and I've got a few campy things in the book. Have you ever seen, this is the campiest horror movie ever made, The Lost Skeleton of Cadabra? No. You haven't. <laughs> after work today, go on YouTube and watch a few minutes of it. My, my sons and I, we our favorite goofy pop culture movie of all time, The Lost Skeleton of Cadabra. And that's in your, it's in your dictionary? It's in, the, it's in the dictionary. I think I, I, I put it in there. Lost Skeleton. And, yeah. Of Cadavera. Well, I figure if I just put in Lost Skeleton, that'll narrow it down yeah. pretty fast. <laughs> so, yeah. So, The Lost Skeleton of Cadavera. And Campy, as I say, you know, I like, like you do, humorous science fiction. I like serious science fiction. I like idea-rich science fiction, you know, sociological. But Campy is sometimes great. It's like Stephen King said in horror. You want things that touch the fine emotions, but if you can't do that, go for the gore. And I was very friendly with, I don't know if you know him, Herschel Gordon Lewis, who was known as the godfather of gore in the, in the B movies. And he said the same thing, you know, he goes, you try for something better, but if you can't, you know, go for campy and people will have fun. Yeah, it's definitely, um, I enjoyed some of the different campy stuff. You don't, there's no high expectations. It's just, you want to have some fun, just chill, chill for a bit on some of the, the travails of life. 
But anyway, I went in there. So, like, I checked out and Buck Rogers, you have five entries. Star Wars, there's 22 entries plus the cited references. Star Trek, you got 56 entries. Heinlein, 22 entries. Hubbard, 21 entries. Asimov, 22 entries plus six cited references. A.E. Van Vo, six entries plus cited reference. Stephen King, 14 entries. And Ray Bradbury, six entries. So, what's the deal with Star Trek? 56 entries. Well, here's the thing. We got, I grew up, I was born in 57 and we grew up, we had the old big wooden black and white TV in the living room with three channels. In 64, my father bit the bullet and bought a color TV. We'd never seen it in color. And the reason I wanted the color TV was for Star Trek and just, and secondarily, the adventures of Superman. So I got captivated by Star Trek, as you know, originally it was only on for three years, but that mesmerized me. And, you know, and since then it's, it's become a major phenomenon, you know, with all the movies and the books and the series. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of trivia. There's a lot of information on Star Trek with all the series, next generation, etc. And that's why I guess there's so much in there. Plus I actually did do a Star Trek trivia book. Oh, I get it. Cause there was definitely a lot <clears throat> And then with Asimov, you have six cited references, whereas everything else was one, maybe two reference. So what makes Asimov so much more having to be that's cited? Easy. That's easy. Isaac Asimov is my writing hero. He is sort of uh, what I would have aspired or I would aspire to be. I liked his style, his prolificity, uh, his work ethic. I like the way he wrote his crystal clear. I write some science too. I, I've written a couple of science books. And when I write a science book, I strive to emulate his clear as a bell style. Unpretentious, simple. You know, I collect, actually, I have a collection of not his science fiction, although I love them. I have a collection of hardcover first editions of his nonfiction science and history books. And I read them not only for the content, but as a writing lesson. And so I've run tons of Asimov as a result. Plus, he's there's, I've read tons because he's so prolific. You know, Asimov, Hubbard, Silverberg, these guys have written a lot more books than most of the other guys. So there's more there for us to, for us to mine. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then on, um, in there, also in the introduction, just, as a point I'll bring up, so which I'm going to be patting myself on the back, and you mentioned science fiction books, um, and I thank you for, in your intro, and I thank you for listening to Battlefield Earth, which you said was over 2 million. That number in 2020 was 4,223,820 based on sales reports. So it's even better than what you were announcing, what you were heralding at the, you know, in your introduction there. And that was in 2020. Um, it, yeah, it continues to do really well as, as, as a book. And I covered my butt because I listed in the, <laughs> in the introduction a lot of things like that. How many copies did Battlefield Earth sell? Did Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? How many billions of dollars did Star Wars make? And I put in the book after I gave all the statistics. But of course, these things continue to sell. So by the time this is in your hands, this may be dated. So I sort of protected myself. <laughs> it shouldn't be dated 2 million copies, but I protected myself a little bit. You did indeed. But I just, I'm just really appreciative of the fact that uh, you know it was one of the books that you listed as as one of the great science fiction books. So, um, as this is the uh, Writers of the Future podcast and Illustrators of the Future podcast, so a lot of the audience are aspiring uh, writers and aspiring artists. So, any other particular drill down you can do on this for uh, a writer of how they could use this and, and the value of it in, in terms of creating their own storylines or how it can be used as either inspiration, story prompt, or just gaining more understanding of the genre that they're writing. Well, I think the prime, all of those are accurate, but the primary way is this. The more you immerse yourself in I, fiction that's ideas of the mind, science fiction, fantasy, horror, the more the the richer your garden becomes and and things will spring to your into your mind unbidden uh and uh you know you, you read you read a book about i'm trying just trying to think of an example uh you know you read a book about uh the swamp thing 
and you think, uh, you know, what, what, if, you know, what, if, what if there was a, cause I live near the Passaic river. What if this happened today and there was a chemical spill in the Passaic river, people started in Patterson, New Jersey, where I grew up, started climbing out of it, you know? <laughs> and you say, why not? Uh, my friend Hunter Shea, who's a horror writer does these kind of things. What, what would, you know, what would happen if, uh, you know, like there's a facility in Long Island, which is near where he lives, uh, that has, is, you know, an old radioactive like storage facility for the army. And he said, well, what happens if there's a lot of dogs trapped in there? And, you know, so you can, you go on from there. So the more of it you read, the more ideas you read, you A, know, learn what has been done and you can either do your own spin on it or it may inspire you to do something totally different. Good. Yeah. Um, I recently had Brian Herbert as a guest on the podcast. And when he first started writing, his dad, Frank Herbert, the, the creator of Dune, would say, he'd tell him, that's already been done. That's already been done. You know, he tried a few different stories and he said, yeah, that's already been done. That was this book here. And um, I mean, Frank had his own problem with that when he was trying to, to write TV scripts where he'd have um, the TV companies that, you know, the editor saying, that's already been done. That was this TV series. So he experienced that, you know, on, on that flow coming into him. But mm -hmm. Um, that's, that was a lesson that Brian definitely learned. You've got to read, you know, do you think I came with this great idea, you know, you get this guy from this other planet and it explodes and he's superpowers when he comes back here on earth, but he's got one weakness, which is the, you know, metal and rocks from that planet. When it hits over here in this galaxy, that's his weakness. I think it's a brilliant idea. You know, I go, right. You know, well, it's, it's funny. Harlan Nelson, who I, the one of the few that I knew for a long time, I interviewed him when I was in college and we stayed in touch here and there. Uh, you know, when he wrote The Star Lost, you know, he's, he, he pitched it to the television business and that they said, oh, this is completely original. He said, I didn't have the heart to tell him that multi-generational starships had been already written about 5,000 times because they hadn't read any of those books. So yeah. when you read, you know that. Yeah. Yeah. You can do you can do your own spin or something different, but you don't blatantly carbon copy something in that you're only doing it in a more boring, less original way. Yeah, I think that's important that that writers need I mean, any great writer will say, you've got to read, you've got to be familiar with the genre you're writing in to know what you're doing, see how it's been done before. And also, you know, you need to learn how how did some of the greats come up with the uh, the story ideas, uh, the type of, you know, FTL, faster than light type travel. Do they just like, you know, some of the people just kind of like, it's just an assumed thing that you can do that. Or some people with their, with their um, magic, they just kind of like, I was just somebody I was listening or reading, um, or maybe it was a podcast that was interviewing somebody with, Gandalf, you know, Lord of the Rings, his magic isn't really defined what he does, but he just, when he needs it, he's got it there, you know, and he can, he's obviously powerful, but how powerful and how it's established, you don't really know. So that's one way of doing it. And then you got Brandon Sanderson, who's got a whole serious world that he creates in rules of magic in his different universes. So, but you're not going to know that unless you read and, and really get familiar. And that's, I think, getting, um, your your book is something that's is a, a really good thing to do to be able to spark that that interest. Yeah, they can get a sampling and a in a compressed framework. Here's what's been done. Here are some things that could be done. Versus you know, otherwise, they'd have to again read ten thousand pages to get the same thing. Yeah. So now on you you made mention here that you know you've got a favorite you ask you know. At the end of the intro, you make a special request for a favor. If you think of an SF fantasy or horror term, idea, character, world, or notion, you forgot to send it along to you. How do we go about doing this? And the best thing you can do is if you go to bly.com, my website, easy to remember, B as in boy, ly.com, you can contact me from there. And if you just want to have my email address directly, it's rwbly at bly.com. And you can email me or email me from the website and uh, touch or on the website. There's my phone number too. call me. I welcome hearing from from everyone, uh, which is why I put my contact information everywhere. Right. OK, well, that's good on that. We'll do that. 
Now, one area that I was curious with too, because you said you've done a few other dictionaries in the past, um, the official term is called a lexicographer. And I know like with with dictionaries, you've got like your Webster's and your Collier's and all these dictionaries, and they're all copyrighted materials. So like if someone else wants to come out with a, a dictionary, you can't use the same definition that Webster's. You need to have a new definition. So that makes for some interesting evolution of of the language. How does that affect you on putting together your fictionary, that that law? Interesting. When Isaac Asimov was in Boston Medical School and had not become a full-time writer yet, he would do his books in his office. And they were mad. They wanted him to do research. So he was doing his book, The Words from Science. And one of his colleagues looked over and said, how is that a book? You're just copying words out of the dictionary. And Asimov handed the guy the dictionary and said, here, you write the book. The, the idea being, you're always going to put your own knowledge, intelligence, feeling, preferences, interpretation into it. So you're never going to copy it, you know, word for word. For example, uh, you know, if you're, def- you're defining, uh, you're putting in a definition of something and you had a personal experience with it, I put that in my definition. You know, I said, when I, I said, when I, for example, you mentioned Fred Paul. I think I said someone in there, I was talking about one of his works. I said, you know, when I was uh, in a seminar he gave, he said this and that's how he explained it. So you're always putting in stuff that's not in not in the reference book. You never you're never copying it word for word. Right. And to write it, you have to not only understand it, you have to you have to have a, a it has to be inside you what it is. You really have to have what I'd call at least a deep or a medium deep understanding or then you are just copying the dictionary. Right. Did you have any particular things you had to go through with your publisher to that says that you're that you have rights for all these things here or that you're not plagiarizing anything? I am very careful because I've written so many books uh, as you are sure as a publisher. Well, you, you know, that you, I, I vet it carefully uh, and I make sure there is a danger. Like if you, if you're, if you're taking something from another source, you know, did you make, did you make sure that you put your own spin on it, that you edited enough, but I am super careful to do that. And they had, they had a very careful, uh, team going over it uh, with editing and proofreading. And I don't think they found too many things. A couple of times they said, hey, you know, this, this is, I'm not sure this is original or where did you get this? But it, it wasn't a big problem because I've done this a lot of times. I get it. Yeah. So I was just, I was just curious because I, we definitely, because as you know, on the books that we, we publish all the, the Pulp Fiction books that we did, right. those books that you helped us with uh, copywriting on, we, Made it. We have a glossary in the back of each book where we define each of these um, older terms, you know, that are not currently used. You know, right. westerns it comes up a lot, but in doing them, we had to have another lexicographer come in and create the definition so we weren't copying something else or just going into Google and typing it in. Okay, here we go. Here's what Wikipedia has, or here's what something else has. We had to make our own definition for it. And the way some people write today. Uh, which is a lazy way. I call it Google goulash. They just, they're writing about petunias. They, they look at three articles on petunias. They cut and paste them together and there's their article on petunias. Right. That's where you're, you're in most definite danger of being a plagiarist and being unoriginal. Yeah. Yeah. So on, on the, um, on your, on your book then. So do you have anticipate, is this something that's, print as well as online this book is now yeah this book is available on amazon uh in paperback and uh hardcover it just it just june 2nd was the official pub date so i got it a couple of days early but you you can get it now and again paperback or hardcover yeah or or ebook good yeah it's definitely a handsome cover thank you Someone said to me, a friend said, oh, that's a very Asimov-looking cover. And I, yeah, I think you're right. It is. <laughs> so um, on your, like I said, this is because this is Writers and Illustrators of the Future. So um, what's your familiarity with, with the competition, with writers, and uh, with the anthology itself? As you know, I've been reading it for years. 
it's on the, the last year's is on the, my my desk, my bookcase right over there. So I read them every year and I love them. I really do say without, uh, you know, trying to butter you guys up, I do say that the best collection of original SF today is the annual Writers of the Future. I mean, I love the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, but, uh, you know, and I love uh, that in the years past, they had all these bests of and anthologies. Today, this is the best. And what I like is uh, mostly when I pick it up, I haven't read, I haven't read the stories before, of course, because you're, you're original, mm -hmm. but also I haven't read a lot of the authors and they drive me to, to pick up those authors' books. Yeah. And my son always laughs. He goes, Dad, you're a little behind. You know, every time I say, who's your favorite science fiction author? She goes, Nevins, the Lasney. You know, you know, you're 65 years old. You ought to go to a bookstore. So, uh, you know, I've started reading, you know, uh, uh, you know, more more contemporary. Also, he he's a big fantasy reader. Uh, he's an, he's even got me reading anime. And surprisingly, I'm liking them. That's great. Yeah, there's a lot of good creativity out there, and you've got to be willing to give it a shot before you can establish that it really is or isn't something that you really right. like. So, um, yeah, but last year's volume 38 just won the gold medal for the best science fiction from um, the IBPA, the uh, Benjamin Franklin right. Award, and then we also just won gold for best science fiction from the IPI, the Independent Publishers Award. And um, I think that's the one I have over there. I'm trying to look at it. And my vision is not good enough. But I see writers of the future. Yeah, I think it is thirty-eight. Yeah. yeah. So when and we're still we're still waiting to hear back on more awards too, and then we're just now getting the awards submissions out for volume thirty-nine. It was really nice on on volume thirty-eight because that was the last book that Dave Farland edited, and that was the last story he actually wrote that was published in there um, that he wrote against the the cover art. So that was very nice too. That um, you know his the cover art to Mastodon, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that was a, that was painted by um, yeah. Bob Eggleton, one of our judges, and he's one of those masters of of fantastical art. Now, you've also mentioned um, Owen Hubbard's Battlefield Earth. That's come up many times from uh, past guests that I've had as one of those inspirational stories on action, adventure, um, science fiction. You li you listed in in here as um, space opera. Um, but I was just curious, like, what is it about Battlefield Earth and um, Hubbard's writing style that you like? Well, the main thing, and there's many things, but the main thing is what is often said about him. He views it as man is courageous, that man will de overcome, defeat enemies, rise above, and progress. He has an optimistic, but but not you know, not uh, unrealistic, but an optimistic view of humanity, which I think it's hard to live if you don't know. You mentioned a lot of people today may not. There's, you know, there's a lot of bad things. There's always been some bad things, but there's a lot of difficulties in the world today. And, you know, science fiction literature, not universally, but is often a, 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 not a prediction of the future, but an optimistic look at the future. Here's what is possible if we're the best we can be. And I find it because I've read a lot of Hubbard's works. Uh, that that's usually or almost always the general theme and direction and point of his work, whether it's a science fiction like Battlefield Earth or, you know, even the Westerns, which I love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, now, we're down to about the last 10 minutes. And one thing I wanted to now do a segue, a bridge over here. As I introduced you, you're the... You're the king of copywriters, or what is it they called you? They're the. They call uh, it's not true, but McGraw Hill said, I am America's top copywriter. Okay, well, it's, they've written it, so we, yeah. we can use it for the purpose of what we're talking about here, and it definitely works because you've got another citation there. Um, so, for writers who are putting together their you know, their, their copy, how to, how to be able to market themselves, how to be able to create social posts or write blogs or articles, any particular tips you've got on what they can do or at least what to avoid? Here's one that uh, some people may like and some people may dislike. You do need to find what you love. The, like I love science fiction. Other, other people love uh, Agatha Christie or mysteries. Do stuff that you love. 
Now, don't say what's popular out there, what's working, and I'll do that. You know, if it's already best selling, you're too late. Find what you like to do and do you the best you can. So if you are uh, a horror writer and, you know, write horror stories, horror novels, be imaginative, read in the field, get immersed in it. And, and for example, I'll give you, I'll give you, when I was young and I just graduated college, I had an urge to write a book. So I went to the, to the bookstore and I said, hey, you know, these Harlequin romances, which I'd never read, they're a formula. It ought to be able, easy to do. So I bought five of them, took them home and wrote up a, like a, a, a 10 page uh, synopsis of what could be a new book in the series. I wish I had it today. It was such garbage because <laughs> I didn't, how, why am I writing a romance book if I not, I'm not a, the audience, but also I don't read them because I wanted to get published. Don't say what will work, what will buy, people buy and pander to it. Write something that you love and you, and you, want to, you want to write, read yourself. Because if you write something that you say, I would really want to read this, I guarantee you there's other people that want to read it and that they are your audience. Not everybody in the world, they are. Good. Now, in terms of like, we have our, our winners, we have people that are, that are writing and putting stuff out there. Um, so now they've written what they love. They're, they're into that, whether it's short fiction or, or long fiction. Any particular tips besides buy my book and, and, and do it that you'd give them like of what they can do or should do on writing um, copy to tell people about their story, whether it's something to do or some or something to avoid. There's uh, there's many different form forums, formats and media for self promotion. You mentioned social media. There's publicity, which you guys do a lot of. I do too, press releases. And that's something people ought to learn how to do. What I like to do is do press releases that are content oriented, that are not buy my book, but here's something interesting. For example, I, uh, in my marketing business, I wrote a press release when the re recession came, not this recession, the last one in 1990, 1991. And I, I had nothing to do with any of my books. I said, hey, if you're a small business, here are seven things you should do that will keep you running no matter how bad the recession gets. And it was picked up, it's on my it's on my website under press releases. It was picked up by dozens of publications, Nation's Business, LA Times, because it had something interesting to the reader. In that case, it was nonfiction. Mm -hmm. But for example, uh, the press releases that we're doing now on this book talk about what are some of the interesting de developments like we discussed earlier that um, in science fiction that are now becoming reality. Two of them are the space elevator, you know, which Arthur C. Clarke first came up with, and NASA is actually uh, looking to have contractors build. And the main one that's blowing everybody else out of the water is AI. So what's going to happen for that? Will it be quantum computing? Or will it be neurologic computing? If you could write a, a press release centered on that, and AI is part of your story, and you're an author of an AI science fiction book, that's a good way to get publicized rather than just talk about your story directly. Good. So then on, so I've got, let's pretend I got 12 new authors. <laughs> that just yeah. got published. Oh, gee, that number. <laughs> so, I mean, we're getting ready to, this week we're, we're putting together a, um, a book funnel um, for each one of the winners. We've got the introduction that was for the audiobook that Jim Eskimen narrated. And then we have, the story itself that either Jim Eskman, his wife, Tamara Meskman, or daughter, Taylor Meskman, all three actors recorded. And then we have an outro, which tells people to check out the other 11 authors. And each one is going to go out his own promotion. What would be a way that, that, that these authors could take advantage of this? What would they say that isn't like buy my book or read my story, but that would be an effective thing that would result in them being better well-known, but also result in more, more product. Are you talking about those 12 authors uh -huh. in particular? Sure. Yeah. So for them, two things, the easy one or the low hanging fruit, they have a credential that hundreds or thousands of other authors don't. 
They're in Riders of the Future. I've never been in Riders of the Future. I'm going to send you a story. I hope you'll look at it. <laughs> you know, I've never been in that. So that is a big credential. We are an awards credential-oriented society. You, you always see someone, they're talking about an award-winning author, an award-winning scientist. Sometimes they don't mention what the award was, but uh, people like that. For example, in science fiction, I haven't won any major awards, but my book of short stories was a, won an award at the New York Book Festival. It's not a big one, but I mentioned that. So mention your awards and your credentials. The other thing is drop, drop a focus a press release, focus your publicity on not the fact that you wrote a book, but what is the big idea or the fast the fascination. I don't know if you remember uh, Joseph Kelly. He was Eisenhower's speechwriter, and he said, "They said, how do you make a speech interesting about all these?" you know, political and economic. He says, there is a kernel of interest in everything man thought of or made or everything God created. You have to find your, you as the author are usually not the kernel of interest. The fact that you wrote a book is not, but there's an idea in that book that is the kernel of interest and you find it. And that's what you build your story around. Not you or not that I wrote a book. That's the number one mistake of novice authors, by the way. They think, I wrote a book and there's, we're all so disappointed, including me, to find out not people don't care that much about you and your book. But if you wrote a book about what happens when, you know, uh, you know, someone uh, hits a switch and all the water in the earth drains into the center of the earth, there's no more water to drink. That's what people are interested in. Good. So that makes good sense. And so not saying, okay, look, at I'm, I wrote this, this really cool story. It's, I'm an award-winning author, which would be something that they would say, of which yeah, we've- That's the minor part. Yeah. yeah. And then what about their story is unique or is something that others will be interested in? What was, what was there, I guess, from what you said earlier, what was so interesting to them that they wrote it and then, right. and then tell that to other people that would be their audience? Yeah. And find that kernel. Focus on one thing. For example, I think it, I forget which book of Vonnegut's it was. It was either Player Piano or uh, Cat's Cradle. When Felix Honecker invented Ice Nine, do you remember that? I do not. But he, go ahead. Yeah, that. So the scientist, it's, there's many parts of the book, but he invents a kind of ice that if it touches anything, it'll freeze everything, everything, and the world will freeze, and he has to keep it contained. So Ice Nine, I thought was a very interesting idea. So if I was, I had been Vonnegut, I'd say. You know, what happened if uh, someone could invent an ice that's a super crystal? Because there is that experiment. If you, I don't know if you've ever done it in chemistry. If you saturate a solution with crystals to the just to a point where it's almost solid and then drop one crystal, one more crystal into it, the whole thing immediately becomes solid. That's sort of like ice nine. So mine would be, could ice nine be real? Good. That may, you know, that'd be something like, for that audience, it would be a perfect yeah. way to be able to, uh, to to zero in on their interest. Yeah. Now, I like it because I'm a, I'm a chemical engineer and I like that geeky stuff. So you, you, people listening might say, well, that's not of interest to me. But there's something of interest to you. And and the you don't have to reach everyone. You have to reach just people who are, have the same mindset, the same interests, who are fascinated by the same stuff you are. Right. Right. Well, this has been great. And as I knew it happened, the hour has come in and gone quite rapidly. Well, I enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you very much. And just one more time, how does somebody, uh, where do they go to find this book, This your science fictionary? The easiest way to get the science fictionary is to get it on Amazon. Good. That's, that's the easiest way to get it. Good. And then for somebody to reach out to you, if they have questions and stuff like that, or wanting to check out more about your 100 plus books that you've written, they go to, again, just go to Amazon, Robert Bly on Amazon? No, they should go to my website. It's very easy to remember because my last name is Bly, B as in boy, L-Y dot com. And there are very few three-letter domain names in existence today. <laughs> that, that told, you, you can't buy any, there are none left in dot com. And so if you can, you can remember my name, Bly, like Captain Bly, you can reach me on my website. My contact information is all over the website. That's amazing. You were born into a marketing <laughs> future. I got lucky with the name. You did indeed. Well, anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you, John. Yes, and subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We're especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Bob. Thank you, John. Appreciate it.